Good morning. We just welcome you to come into the sanctuary and get yourself settled in. I invite you to stand with us as we sing. invite each one of you here. Um, thank you for being here. I invite you to join us in um, a responsive reading. Your part is to say we give thanks. To the God of heaven and earth, creator of people and creatures, author of seasons and of time, we give thanks. In this season of reflection, we look back over our lives and over the year past, and we acknowledge the ways that you have shaped us. We give thanks. We acknowledge the ways that things have not been perfect, and we have fallen short. We give thanks. We reflect on the difficulties we have encountered and the sorrows that we have borne. We give thanks. We remember the times you have seemed near to us and the times you have, that we have been so engrossed in our own lives that we couldn't sense your presence. We give thanks. We confess those times we have failed to help and missed opportunities to love. We give, we give thanks. In joy and in sorrow, in triumph and in failure. We give, we give thanks. In prosperity and in loss, in ease and in difficulty. We, we give, give thanks. We rest in the knowledge that your purposes are accomplished both with and despite us. 
and we understand that every part of our journey is an opportunity for us to grow. We give thanks. We rest in the peace of your kindness and soak up your overflowing love, which is always directed toward us, regardless of whether we are willing to receive it. We give thanks. May we go forward, walking in that same kindness, passing peace to all we meet, and loving generously and intentionally. We give thanks. And may gratitude be reaped and sown in our hearts. We give thanks. Amen. Amen. I invite you to pray with me. God, I thank you that you are faithful, and that we can see you at work around us, um, draw us to you, uh, give us hearts that are obedient to you. And um, I pray, too, that you would take our offerings of, of worship, um, both today and throughout this week, and um, the gifts of, of money as well. God, I pray you would take those and use those to your glory and honor. Amen. you to stand with us as we sing the last two songs.
Thank you. Please be seated. I'll let the worship team go and have a seat. And if you'd like to turn your Bibles to Colossians 1. I'll be reading from the New International Reader's Version. So it's Colossians 1, 9 to 21. <clears throat> and that is why we have not stopped praying for you. We have been praying for you since the day we heard about you. We keep asking God to fill you with the knowledge of what he wants. We pray that he will give you the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Then you will be able to lead a life that is worthy of the Lord. We pray that you will please him in every way. So we want you to bear fruit in every good thing you do. We pray that you will grow to know God better. We want you to be very strong in keeping with his glorious power. We want you to be patient. We pray that you will never give up. We want you to give thanks to, with joy to the Father. He has made you fit to have what he will give to all his holy people. You will all receive a share in the kingdom of light. He has saved us from the kingdom of darkness. He has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Because of what the Son has done, we have been set free. Because of him, all her sins have been forgiven. The Son is the exact likeness of God who cannot be seen. The Son is first, and he's over all creation. All things were created in him. He created everything in heaven and on earth. He created everything that can be seen and everything that cannot be seen. He created kings, powers, rulers, and authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. Before anything was created, he was already there. He holds everything together, and he is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning. He is the first to be raised from the dead. That happened so he would be far away. He would be far above everything. God was pleased to have his whole nature living in Christ. God was pleased to bring all things back to himself. That's because of what Christ has done. These things include everything on earth and in heaven. God made peace through Christ's blood by his death on the cross. At one time you were separated from God. You were enemies in your mind because of your evil ways. The word of the Lord. Good morning. If you got your bulletins on you, time to pull them out. We have a couple things that are on here. Let's go through them. Uh, the first, tonight, 7 p.m., tonight at Ron and Charlene's place, there is going to be a get-together. Uh, everyone is invited. Bring a snack for potluck. Drinks are going to be provided. Oh, it's going to be a wonderful time. I looked at the forecast outside, and we're finally having a bit of a break from that stupidly hot weather from last week. So 7 p.m. tonight, Ron and Charlene's. If you need to know where that is, come talk to me or Ron and Charlene. We'll get you there. Next, Wednesday, 7 p.m., prayer meeting at the church. Uh, Sunday, 10.45 a.m., next week, worship service. We are going to have special guest speaker. They are the Sayers. They uh, are missionaries in Spain, and so they're going to share uh, wonderful things about what they are doing there. So that is uh, the Sayers, next Sunday, 10.45 a.m. Skipping down to the rest of the announcements, August 7th, there is going to be a baby dedication in the church for three babies, and so... I mean, I'm the father of one of them, so I'm a bit 
I'm looking forward to it. I'm not going to lie. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and there's going to be a lunch to follow provided by Chai and Bo, so make sure to come on out for that. Oh, it's going to be a good Sunday. And the next Sunday is going to be a great one as well because baptism is going to be during the morning service. That's August 14th. We're going to have a baptism. So make sure to come on out for that to cheer along our baptismal candidates. Going down this Sunday, this weekend starting Thursday, there we go, uh, is the Thresherman's Reunion at the Ag Center. And so we have a couple things to talk about on that. The first is that the North Norfolk Child Care Center, that is the group looking to put a daycare here in town, they are still looking for volunteers. Uh, you can sign up by going to their Facebook page or just let me know and I can help you along that as well. Uh, the next is the... There is a group that goes to the Thresherman's Reunion to share the gospel. Uh, Corny Sawatsky from uh, Summerfeld is very heavily involved with that. You can see his number there. If you are interested in sharing the gospel at the Thresherman's Reunion, give him a call. Uh, then going farther down, this one isn't on there, but Sean and Adrian, they have decided to use their cell phones as their main source of communication, so their cell phones are listed on the church uh, directory, so make sure to use those if you need to get in touch with Sean and Adrian. All right, then let's go to the items for prayer. The first uh, is a uh, addition from uh, June 19th, uh, Otto Ham passed away. That is uh, Menno and Elvira's brother. The funeral is going to be in Winkler on Monday, which is tomorrow. And so we're going to want to make sure to pray uh, that the funeral goes well, uh, as well as for Elvira, Menno, and Alvina during the time to come. He was 97, and he lived a wonderful life building the kingdom as a pastor, as a missionary, as a teacher. And so there is a lot to praise there, but at the same time, we want to pray. Uh, we want to pray also for the Thresherman's reunion because that's a lot of people that I think this is the first one in three years. And so we just want to pray that that goes well, that all the details fall into place and that it is a safe weekend for all that come. And so let's go now into a time of prayer. Our dear Lord, we come before you this morning first in praise for a break in the heat. We thank you very much that the heat came and dried up a bit of the water that was still plaguing the area, but at the same time, we love having these breaks so we can get outside and walk around and just enjoy the creation that you have made, and we thank you for that. And Lord, looking forward to this week, we want to pray that this good weather holds as well. Lord, we're thinking first of the Thresherman's reunion that starts on Thursday. God, it's been a number of years since it has gone, and we pray that it is just like riding a bike, that it all comes back and that it is a wonderful weekend, that it draws people from all around and it is a great boon for our area. Lord, this we pray for the safety there as well as for the volunteers and the workers, and Lord, we pray it is a good weekend. And we want to pray for Corny and everyone that is with him as they share the gospel. We want to pray that new ears hear. We want to pray that new ears take to heart. And we want to pray that your kingdom is built accordingly. And Lord, we want to pray also for the daycare booth that they find the last of the volunteers that they need. And also 
that it is a safe and good fundraiser to put that daycare up here in town. Lord, we put that before you. And Lord, we want to also pray for Otto's funeral coming up tomorrow. First, Lord, we pray a prayer of thanks for the model that Otto has lived, for the people that he has shown to you, for the parts of your kingdom in the areas that he was, that he has built up. Lord, we thank you for the witness that he has lived. And God, now as we look to the funeral tomorrow in Winkler, we pray that it'll be a good day of remembering and a good day of goodbye. We also want to put Alvira and Menno before you and Alvina and the rest of the family, God. We want to pray, be with them, be the comfort they need during this time when they remember their brother. Lord, all of these things we put before you this morning. And in all things, we praise your name. In your name, amen. This morning, we have a special guest speaker. His name is Dustin Burlett. He was in seminary with me, and you are not going to find a more passionate, knowledgeable, and other, oh, we'll just keep gushing otherwise. I'm just going to ask him to come right up, and he will be sharing with you this morning. Thank you very much for even trusting me to come to your church. I was speaking with Ron this morning, and, uh, you know, the truth is, is that I very, very rarely tell people not only what I do for a living, I'm a Bible college teacher, uh, I teach at Miller College in the north end of Winnipeg by Shiloh Mission, actually, but before that I taught for four years at Peace River Bible Institute, and so some of you may be familiar with PRBI because of Waldy Neufeld or some of the other folks from there, but I went to Bible college at PRBI. Uh, and I was in the camping program, believe it or not. And my sister was also part of the camping program. So my sister was the first person from PRBI to graduate with the Christian Camping, Christian camping Ministries minor. And we have been involved with Circle Square Ranch, which you guys might know because of Austin, for over 10 years. So I was the program director, I was the head of maintenance, and I did an awful lot of work with their horses. But my sister was involved with the PRBI sports camp, and my sister was involved with different things at PRBI for a long time. So when I went to Bible college, that was my college of choice. And then after I left PRBI, I got to arrange all my stuff because I've got a lot of stuff that I'm in my head and how much I communicate to you. I've been told that it can be like drinking from a fire hose but I don't want that to be the case for everybody because otherwise it doesn't always work. And so anyways, when I left PRBI after I graduated, I went to Providence Theological Seminary and I took my Master of Divinity uh, at Prov and Russell and I were uh, students there together. And after my MDiv, I have a Master of Divinity in Biblical Languages, I went from Providence to go back to PRBI to teach. So I was teaching there for four years, and at around year one or year two, I was handed an elective course on science, creation, and the Bible. Now, if you want to cause controversy, and if you want to stir the pot, or have the proverbial you-know-what hit the fan, 
Start talking about science, creation, and the Bible, particularly in a conservative evangelical environment. So the first thing that I had to figure out was a textbook, and because I had taken courses with Tremper Longman at Providence, I immediately used his textbook, and I loved it. I thought it was awesome. I thought it was fantastic. But one of the things that I was beginning to discover was that I had unanswered questions, and questions that, you know, it was like an itch in my mind that couldn't be scratched, and it was related to Noah's flood. And you might see here that I have a, a wooden replica of Noah's Ark. And that was one of the things that was beginning to really pique my interest was Noah's flood. You see, I grew up in Alberta. And in Alberta, there's a lot of fossils. I used to live, relatively speaking, close to Drumheller, the Royal Trail Museum. And then in Peace River, north of Grand Prairie, there's another dinosaur museum in the Peace region, which is very similar to that. Now, can anybody tell me what this might be? This is a fossil, but what is it a fossil of? Might anybody know? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to pass this around. Go ahead. You take this, and I'm going to give this to you. You hold it, and then when you're done with it, you pass it on. And then to this side, I'm actually going to give this book. This was the first book that I had ever read on the topic of science, creation, and the Bible. It's by G.S. McLean. It's called The Evidence for Creation. And the thing that, when I fell, I hurt my finger. Uh, the thing that really impressed me about this book was it actually has the very image and reproduction of that fossil because that fossil was found at Circle Square Ranch, Hellkirk, and they had a bunch of scientists come out and do analysis of that fossil with respect to science, creation of the Bible, and Noah's flood. So I'm going to pass this book around over here. Now, when I grew up, the only option available to me, and it, it's marked with a little sticky note in case you're wondering where it is, the only option that was available to me was a catastrophic global flood that covered the entire world. That's what I had been taught, and that was the only option that was available to me to think about, to consider, and to believe. Now, this commentator, Genesis, a commentary by Bruce Waltke with Kathy Fredericks, says this about the Genesis flood. And I find this very, very intriguing. This is from page 132, and it's footnote 34. He says, Many evangelicals favor a local flood. But the narrator, this is talking about Hebrew literature, but the narrator, even allowing for oriental hyperbole, seems to have in mind a universal flood. In other words, a global flood versus a local flood. Even allowing for oriental hyperbole. The geological arguments favoring a local flood assume that the history of the Earth's geology is uniform, but the text represents a geological cataclysm and the recreation of the Earth. And then he says, I am not competent to judge whether the scientific data favors or disallows a universal flood. When I first started teaching the course on science creation in the Bible, the question of oriental hyperbole and the question of the flood was something that arose in my mind that I could not escape from. It caused stirrings deep in my soul that needed answering. So because I had contact with Tremper Lawnman and some of these other people, I contacted them and I said, 
you know, you have written these and these works on these and these areas. The other person was John Walton, who I contacted. I said, do you have any intentions of publishing a work on the Genesis flood? And at that point in time, both of those esteemed scholars whom I respect, admire, appreciated, and quite frankly held in very high esteem, not worshipped, but at least admired greatly, both told me no and we have no intentions of doing so at this time. Now, where is that fossil now? Where is it at? Does anybody know what it might be? Shout out from the crowd if you know what it is. It's a clamshell. That's absolutely right. It is a fossilized clamshell. And one of the unique things about clams is that oftentimes when they die, the, the, the muscle inside relaxes, and what often happens? It opens, but that clam was found in what position? Open or closed? How can a fossilized clam be fossilized in the closed position? Through a catastrophic burial process. Some sort of catastrophe had to happen to flood that clam to the degree where the muscle couldn't decompose to allow it to relax to open. So when I taught the course again, what I discovered is I need to get to the bottom of this. It was something that I could not release from my mind, and nobody had the answers that I could find. I went through 50 different books trying to find a textbook to try to solve this problem that Bruce Waltke mentioned, Oriental Hyperbole, Local and Universal Flood. Finally, I got the call from Gus Conkle. Now, Gus Conkle was a very close advisor and mentor to me when I was at Providence Theological Seminary. He officiated my wife's and I's wedding. And at that time, he had left the presidency of Providence to go to McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, Ontario. He gave me a call and he said, Dustin, you've been up here at BI for some time now. You haven't found answers to this problem. I need to encourage you to give up your teaching post, to go to Hamilton, Ontario, take a PhD, study the flood, and solve this problem. And I thought, why in the world would I ever do that? Like, are you out of your mind, Gus? So I sent him this big, long email about all the reasons why I shouldn't go for my PhD. And he sent me a big, long list of all the reasons why I should. And so I printed it off, and I taped it to my door, where I could see it every day before I went to work. And finally, not that Gus won, but God won, and he allowed my wife and I the opportunity to leave our beautiful place and our beautiful teaching post to go to Hamilton, Ontario. And I spent the last six years doing my PhD in Old Testament at McMaster Divinity College, where I studied Noah's flood using a very specific method called the rhetorical method. And I'm very pleased to say, and this is going to be where I'm going with it, I've had, my book is coming out before Christmas, crossing my fingers, the editor just told me that um, there's been a delay. He won't say it's because of COVID, but I have reason to believe that it's because of COVID. I have had the world's foremost authorities on a local flood endorse my work, and I've had the world's foremost authorities on a universal flood endorse my work. Some of you may know Dennis Lamoureux from the University of Alberta. He is a staunch anti-young earth creationist. Staunch. He does not believe in a historical Adam. He loves my work. 
John Goldengay, who wrote the more recent Baker commentary on Genesis, loves my work and has endorsed my work. But Bill Barrick, one of the most staunch young earth creationists, and in fact, an individual who I had the privilege during my PhD career to go to the Grand Canyon to experience firsthand evidence to see the nature of the flood firsthand. Bill Barrick was the leader on that trip. He loves and endorses my work. And that is when Gus said, Dustin, I believe that I found your calling. It isn't necessarily to be an academic, although I am an academic. I write articles. I work on different uh, academic stuff. He says, I actually have reason to believe that your job is to be a bridge in this world to help create less controversy where we get more light and less heat with respect to these issues. Because if you want to throw gasoline on a fire, start talking about creation, science, and the Bible. When I first started to teach, I would always quote from this book, the Tyndale Old Testament Commentary Series by Derek Kidner. And this is what he says in his author's preface. He says, this is page nine, there can scarcely be another part of Scripture, talking about Genesis, there can scarcely be another part of Scripture over which so many battles, theological, scientific, historical, and literary, have been fought, or so many strong opinions cherished. I'm not sure if your Facebook feed is the same as my Facebook feed, but when one of my young earth creationist friends wrote a book, and one of my non-young earth creationist friends who's on the same Facebook feed starts discrediting that book, my Facebook feed gets blown up because what am I doing? I'm endorsing the one guy's work and my young earth creationist buddy is all attacking that one young earth creationist guy's work. And then I have to come to the rescue of both because I'm friends with Trent Prolongman on Facebook and I'm friends with Bill Barrick on Facebook. I'm friends with Mark Ward on Facebook and I'm friends with Dennis Lamaru on Facebook. Do you see how these are mutually incompatible? until you bring about a mediator. And who is that mediator? That mediator is Christ. Because Christ has come to break down the dividing wall between all parties and all camps. Jew, Gentile, Greek, Roman, young earth creationist, and old earth creationist. I have reason to believe that in Christ, we have no reason to squabble, fight, and argue over this issue. And I'm going to give you the three C's as to why after I read you the rest of this quote. I also believe that spaced repetition is the best form of learning. So I'm going to start the quote again from the beginning. There can scarcely be another part of Scripture over which so many battles, theological, scientific, historical, and literary have been fought, or so many strong opinions cherished. This very fact is a sign of the greatness and power of the book of Genesis and of the narrow limits of both our factual knowledge and our spiritual grasp. If the interpretations and discussions offered here are found far from infallible or complete, no one is more aware of it than the author. And I can say the same for me. If you don't really like what, you have, what I have to say, or if you really don't think that what I have to say 
uh, meets your standards, probably nobody's more aware of it than me. Words are clumsy at best, and I know the limits of my knowledge. I have a PhD, which means I went to the end of the universe and beyond in this very, very, very minor area. It's not a mile wide and an inch deep. It's an inch wide and a mile deep. And because I know so much about this one topic, I know how much there is to know about every other topic. What I mean by that is this. My knowledge created humility in me because I knew that there was so much to know about this one topic. How can there not be so much to know about every other topic? I spent six years on four chapters of the Bible only to discover that people could probably spend six years of their life on two verses. I read an entire book on one verse, Genesis 8.21. I read an entire book on Genesis 8.21. It created humility in me. You see, my friends, it's not the fact that a little bit of knowledge is the problem. Knowledge can puff up, but it isn't knowledge in and of itself that's the problem. It's the pride that accompanies that knowledge. My knowledge led to greater humility in my life because I realized if there's that much that I didn't know that I had learned, how much more is there yet to know? So he says, if the interpretations and discussions offered here are found far from infallible or complete, no one is more aware of it than the author. But they are put forward in the hope that even when they are unpalatable, and that's often what happens when we read learn or discuss something that we disagree with. It's unpalatable to us. It's like when we watch Corner Gas. What's the name of that one town? You know, they always talk about that one town, and then what do they say immediately after? Patui, right? When we don't like something, we spit it out of our mouth. It's unpalatable to us. But he says, even if it's unpalatable, his hope, his prayer, and his desire is that it will provoke it will provoke all the closer study of the inspired text itself. And that, my friends, is my hope, is that when you hear something that is very unpalatable to you, yeah, go ahead and patooey it out of your mouth, but may it provoke you to study the text all the more closer. Now, here's the three C's that, in my opinion, will help us move forward to creation, evolution, science, the Bible, you name it. The first C is simply this, clarity, clarity. When I was a teacher, whether it was a one-week module or a full semester class, I made everybody write a personal position paper. And part of the personal position paper was a requirement where students had to engage with every opposing position. So they actually spent a great deal of time on the Answers in Genesis website. They actually were required to log in for a certain amount of time, and then they actually had to vindicate and prove that they had done it by submitting a report. Then they had to do the same thing for Hugh Ross's website with respect to old earth creationism. Then they had to do the exact same thing with the intelligent design movement with Stephen Meyer and company. Then they had to do the exact same thing with BioLogos. So by the time they came to their actual personal position, not only did they know what the other people believed, they knew why they believed it. 
Then they had to write using a Zondervan textbook four views or three views on the historical Adam or Genesis or science creation of the Bible. One of these things, they actually had to explain the best arguments both for and against their position. You see, I used to teach a course on modern cults, and it, it involved to a very high degree Mormons. Now, I had a ministry to Mormons for a season in Grand Prairie, and one of the most amazing things is that the Mormon biblical literature can be very easily disproven through science. The Mormons believe that the South American Indians are Semitic, that the Israelites traveled across the ocean and landed in South America. We have discovered through DNA research that they're actually East Asian, not Semitic. Big difference, right? So all my students are like, woo! cheers, score points for us. But I said, did you not know that that same research could possibly have implications about the DNA, about Adam and Eve, and about the Human Genome Project? And I started talking about Dennis Lamru and Dennis Venema and some of the people from BioLogos. And all of a sudden, their mouths dropped because all of a sudden it wasn't woo, woo, because all of a sudden it began to affect their holy scriptures. Does that make sense? It was easy to score points when it was one against the team, but when it was for them, all of a sudden it became a lot harder. Now, I'm so persuaded, my friends, and I need us to completely understand this. Nothing, nothing in God's word, nothing in God's word will ever contradict what we see in God's world because God is the one and same author of the world and the word. But one of the greatest areas of controversy to discuss or discern this is through Noah's flood. And so what we need to do, in my opinion, is we need to gain clarity. And the best way to gain clarity is to begin to engage with people who you disagree with. So before I went to the Grand Canyon, I read a book called The Lost World of the Flood by Tremper Lawnman, John Walton, and Stephen Moshear. And Stephen Moshear was the geologist, and he began to talk about the Coconino sandstone. Now say that to the person sitting next to you. Coconino sandstone, let me hear you say it. Coconino sandstone, one more time. Coconino sandstone, okay. I went to the Grand Canyon, and I'm in the middle of the Grand Canyon, and this geologist, who I didn't know his name, and I didn't know him from a hole in the ground, he said, who here can tell me about the Coconino and me? Not in my arrogance, okay, not in my arrogance, in my awareness of my research, I said, I know a thing or two about the Coconino sandstone. And I said, I've read the Bible, Rocks and Time by Yun and Steerley. I said, I read Grand Canyon, Monument to, Catastrophe, uh, uh, Monument to an Old Earth by Carol Hill. And I said, and I just, and I had, I had just written a formally published review of Lost World of the Flood. I said, this is what I know about the Coconino. And so I started to tell him, the Coconino has a certain angle of the cross beds. The Coconino, when you grind it up and you look at it under, under a lens, it has a certain granular nature. He said, would you be surprised to discover that everything that you have ever read on the Coconino sandstone is wrong? I said, you'd be hard pressed to make me believe that. These are publications from Zondervan, IVP Academic, Baker, you name it, Kriegel. He said, all right, what's the granular nature? And, I, you know, it's coarse or it's smooth, right? Those are the options. And so I, I gave my answer. He said, wrong. And I said, well, what's the cross bet? I said, it's this angle, and it's steep or it's shallow. And I gave my answer. He says, wrong. I says, 
No. No. He said, did you know that none of those geologists had done the investigative field work on the Coconino? And that what they had actually done was they had written their reports based upon their presuppositions of what they thought they would find in the Coconino? My research has overturned all of those assessments. I felt lied to. I felt betrayed by my friends and by my confidence and by people who I had already written over half of three quarters of my book by that time. Does this make sense? So after I come back from the Grand Canyon, I had a head full of steam. I'm going to let my buddies know. So I contact Stephen Moshira and says, actually, Dustin, you're right. Uh, this guy's name is John Whitmore. John Whitmore's conclusions are accurate, and they provide very interesting and stimulating detail. But I still believe, and then, he, of course, he went on to believe what he believed. So I contacted my other buddy, Tim Hevel, and he's like, oh, you know, I don't believe that, you know, John Whitmore has accounted for this or that or the other thing. And that's when I began to discover, you know what? There's always two sides to an argument, but there's still only one truth. When you look at the Coconino and you grind the granular nature and you look at it under a microscope, there's only one truth. It's either coarse or it's fine. And when you take the angles and you measure them, there's only one truth. It's either steep or it's shallow. Now, the implications of those things can vary from person to person, or the application of those things can vary from person to person. Does this make sense? But the first step is clarity. And without clarity, how do you know what foundation you have? Does this make sense, my friends? I thought I had done the most extensive research. This is PhD-level research, only to discover that everything that I thought I knew about the Coconino Sandstone was not only dead wrong, but the exact opposite. It was a revolutionary insight. And it began to make me think, oh my gosh, who else am I not listening to because, you know, I thought I'd done my research? Or who else might be marginalized because of this, that, and the other thing? But I want to tell you again, first step of clarity, our foundation, is the Word of God. And that what we find in the Word of God will never contradict what we see in God's world. God's world and God's Word will never contradict each other because it's the one and the same author. But until you gain clarity on these people's positions and why they believe it, how will you ever, ever understand the second point? So the first C is clarity. Second C is conviction. Conviction. That's almost a dirty word in today's society. If you have conviction, you are seen as a fanatic, a lunatic. I, I can't even remember what Trudeau said. Um, a marginalized outlier. I can't remember what he called the trucker's convoy. But it's like, you know, if you have conviction nowadays, basically you're seen as somebody less than intelligent. Does this make sense? But my friends, we are called to have conviction. We must plant our flags, and we must plant our flags early. Why? Because in my opinion, the gospel demands, it commands allegiance. You cannot be neutral about the gospel. You can't. Christ doesn't allow it. But you can have conviction and still be an idiot. You can be a flag waver and not have a clue why you're waving that flag. Does this make sense? There's almost nothing worse than a motivated idiot, you know? So if you're going to be a convicted person, have some clarity about your conviction first so that when you plant your flag, okay, when you plant your flag, you can actually come up 
with some good, legitimate reasons as to why you have your conviction. So one of my favorite students, and I have to clarify this, not necessarily one of my best students, but one of my favorite students was a gentleman who was a mature student. He had three kids, and he came because he wanted to be a pastor, and he was about 40 years old. He came to my class, and I got into so much trouble because the academic dean came to my office, and he said, Dustin, such and such a student got an A in your class, and he failed my class. What is going on? And so I had to go to the student, and I asked him what's going on. He said, Dustin, you and I had coffee every day almost for an hour until I understood the material. And he said, and I knew that I understood the material because I was at a hockey game, and somebody brought up young earth creationism and old earth creationism. And he said, I actually know a thing or two about that. And he said, and after that conversation, the person said, I understand for the first time. He said, that's when he knew he got it because he could actually teach it to somebody else. When he was put on the spot and somebody challenged his convictions, he had a good enough clarity of his convictions that not only was he able to stand true to his own conscience, he was able to convert the other person to his opinion. It was persuasive. That's what made me appreciate the student so much. It got in his bones. He knew it. He lived it. He breathed it. It was inside of him. And until you can come to the point where you know that you know that you know, where else can you be? Because the gospel commands allegiance. The conviction of Christ compels us. So the first step, my friends, is clarity. But the second step is conviction. And the third step is compassion. And this is where I believe we have far, far, far too many problems. I want to read a book that significantly, I'm not going to read the whole book. I want to read a quote from a book that highly influenced me in my PhD journey. It's called Excellence, The Character of God and the Pursuit of Scholarly Virtue by Andreas Kostenberger. And when I was reading this book, I was a, not even a newly minted PhD. I was still in the process. But this is what he says about love and the truth of the gospel. He says, I believe some scholars work with the following possibly subconscious presupposition. God will forgive us if we are mean because the opposition is so obviously wrong and after all, we are only defending the truth of the gospel. Those words resonate so deeply that I feel the need to repeat them because that which is important is repeated. That which is important is repeated. I believe some scholars work with the following possibly subconscious presupposition. God will forgive us if we are mean because the opposition is so obviously wrong and after all, we are only defending the truth of the gospel. We often demonize the opposition and rationalize our lack of love because those on the other side are, of course, the enemies and undermining God's truth and opposing his kingdom. Our defense of the truth, however, must never leave love behind. Our defense of the truth 
must never leave love behind. My friends, we need clarity on these issues. I uh, just became, um, uh, I've just recently became uh, affiliated with Theodidakatos, the theological journal. Uh, Kevin Weeb and I were friends in seminary. For a season, there was no discussion about science and creation of the Bible within certain Mennonite circles. When I was at Providence, I remember reading letters to the editor and the editors responding saying, we will no longer accept letters, letters to the editor on this subject. I have met with presidences. Pre, pre, what's the plural of presidents? Presidents? That just sounds weird. I have met with Bible college presidents, seminary professors, and very high influential people in positions of authority. And they have told me more than once, Dustin, we don't go there because it causes too many, too many problems. It causes problems with our donor bases. It causes problems with our students. It causes problems with this, that, the other thing, and the name it. And I say, we cannot afford to do that, my friends. We cannot avoid this issue or any other issue. We cannot avoid to do it. We can't. But we need to do it well. We need to do it with compassion. And we cannot, in our defense of truth, leave love behind. Tremper Lawnman wrote an excellent article, an excellent article in one of my favorite teaching journals called Didakatos. And the day before I went, so I was invited to go to the Grand Canyon with Answers in Genesis Canada with Calvin Smith and all these people, you might know Ken Ham from the States. The first time I went on television with Answers in Genesis, the day before I went on television, I was in prayer on my knees because this was a very unique and privileged opportunity. And I felt I had a rare and wonderful opportunity to actually put my money where my mouth is and not take the opportunity to badmouth any individual party, old earth creationist or young earth creationist. The day before I went on television, this came in the mail, and Tremper Lawnman wrote an article, and I knew it was a godsend. And at the end of the interview, it was unscripted, and I told Calvin Smith, I said, I have good reason to believe that the Lord has put it upon my heart to share this message. And he, of course, gave me the liberty to do so. So I opened this page to page 42. Sage advice is the column. Avoid theological tribalism. Avoid theological tribalism. Read broadly. And this is what he says. Let me recount a conversation I had a few years ago with a theologian friend. We hadn't seen each other for a while, so we engaged in small talk until he launched into a long diatribe, diatribe about a book written by a former student and colleague of mine. He was raising his voice as he registered his complaints about what my friend said about Scripture, accusing him of heresy. And this is actually one of my favorite books, and I'm actually going to make a donation today of this book to this church called The Fool and the Heretic, published by Zonervan, How Two Scientists Move Beyond Labels to a Christian Dialogue About Creation and Evolution. Why? Because, my friends, I, was, I married a Mennonite. And labels are for jars, not people. Do you understand? Labels are for jars, not people. 
Because what we tend to do is as soon as you appropriate a label onto someone, you can begin to pigeonhole them, you can begin to demonize them, you begin to ostracize them, and you begin to dehumanize them. Oh, they're just fill in the blank in the label. How two Christian scientists moved beyond labels to a Christian dialogue about creation and evolution. Todd Charles Wood is the unearthed creationist. Daryl Falk is the evolutionist. I'll let you figure out who might be considered the fool and who might be considered the heretic. I'm making this donation because I have reason to believe that that's one of the best books on the subject and it's produced by the Colossian form. And that Colossian passage that we had read to us is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because in Christ, all things hold together. He buried the dividing wall so we can move beyond Jew and Gentile, beyond Greek and Roman, beyond labels to the convictions and the clarities of our own consciousness with compassion so we can first seek to understand, then to be understood. And that capacity is only available to us through the Holy Spirit in Christ. So he said, let me recount a conversation I had a few years ago with a theologian friend. We hadn't seen each other for a while, so we engaged in small talk until he launched into a long diatribe about a book written by a former student and colleague of mine. He was raising his voice as he registered his complaints about what my friend said about Scripture, accusing him of heresy. At a certain point, triggered by something he said, I asked, have you actually read the book? He angrily responded, no, I would never read a book like that. I only read books where I agree with the author. When I challenged his ability to criticize a book he hadn't read, he said all he needed was for others to tell him, and that was a sufficient basis to judge. Later, I learned from someone close to him that selective reading was his general practice. Again, let me emphasize that this person is an influential thinker who has very opinionated views on a whole host of matters and frequently attacks rather than reading and learning from those who come to different conclusions on issues like Bible and evolution and other hot topics among evangelicals. Unfortunately, I know he is not alone in his narrow research habits. The bottom line is that we need to avoid tribalism as well as the demonization of those with whom we disagree. Our research should be characterized by graceful and knowledgeable interaction with others. Graceful and knowledgeable interaction with others. One is clarity, two is conviction, but three is compassion. Because as Paul said, if I can speak with the tongue of angels, but have not love, I'm just a resounding gone or a clanging symbol. Love, love, love. I invite you to stand for a closing song. We'll uh, sing it through, and then we'll wait for Pastor Russell to give the closing prayer, and then we'll finish with the chorus.
Thank you, Dustin, for those wise words. I'm going to be scratching my head for that for a while. What other people are there that we pigeonhole without actually thinking about what they're actually saying? What other ideas are there that we don't actually know about, but just kind of assume the people that hold them are not people that are worth one thing or the other? Our benediction today comes from the book of Numbers. May God bless you and keep you. May he let his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he show you his face and bring you peace. Go now and serve our wonderful Lord.